Welcome to Financial Fitness with host Nika Constantino. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of the staff, management, or board of directors of 89.9 KMOJ. Good evening. This is a special episode of Financial Fitness. Tonight we are joined in our virtual living room with founder and CEO of Aerial Investments a Black-owned investment firm with over $10 billion in assets under management. Ariel has in recent years partnered with Schwab to release the Ariel Schwab Black Investor Survey, which details investor behaviors between Black Americans and their white counterparts, providing the framework needed to close the gap that exists, even among who we consider to be affluent. Ariel Investments is said to be the largest black-owned investment firm in the United States. Good evening, John Rogers. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Glad to be here. So I have a lot of questions for you, but first I'm going to ask that you provide a little context for how you came to be the founder of Ariel Investments and what the economic landscape was like during that time. Well, well, thank you. Um, When I started in 1983, the economic landscape was changing because you had pioneering African-American mayors in more and more cities. And um, right as we were starting the firm, Harold Washington got elected to be the mayor of Chicago. And all these progressive mayors who had been getting elected in this time frame, people like Coleman Young in Detroit, Maynard Jackson in Atlanta, Tom Bradley in L.A., they all were committed to making sure that there was a a belief that we needed to fight hard to get opportunities for African-American businesses to thrive and succeed in our country and in their respective cities. So as an up-and-coming entrepreneur, it was nice to have that wind at your back when you knew your mayor was there fighting to get doors opened uh, for African-American entrepreneurs. Uh, I chose to focus on the investment world and find, founding the first African-American-owned investment management company because um, I felt comfortable doing that because my father had started buying stocks for me was, when I was a kid. Every birthday and every Christmas after I was 12 years old, I got stock certificates instead of toys. So the stock market became my passion. I loved it. I enjoyed it. And because I've been investing for such a long time, I had the confidence to start the firm when I was 24 years old uh, after two years at William Blair. What is your take on the current economic outlook right now that we're facing globally? Well, as we know, this has been the uh, worst economic downturn since the Great Depression. You know, it's, it's extraordinarily heartbreaking for so many. It's so painful for so many. It's, it's just uh, unbelievable. But I, so it, it's just, you know, it's just flat out. It's just been, the, you know, again, the worst since the Great Depression. You can't say much more than that. I think the positive news is I'm just, you know, knowing today that more and more states are opening up and getting back to some kind of the new normal. I just read the Starbucks is going to open up 85% of its restaurants. You're starting to hear about, you know, green shoots happening throughout the United States where as we slowly but surely open up, um, certain businesses are starting to grow again and opportunity is building. So I think we'll be able to come out of this 
downturn uh, pretty forcefully as we move into the summer months. I think people, there's a lot of pent-up demand from people who've been stuck at home and not in a position to um, go out and, and consume the products and the things they've enjoyed in life. So I have a follow-up question to that, and that's how can African Americans take advantage of this current market environment? Well, I tell you know all of my investor friends that it's always important to do what Warren Buffett says. You know, Warren Buffett's the world's greatest investor of all time, and he always says you want to be greedy when others are fearful, um, and fearful when others are greedy. So this has been a, a period of enormous fear. And it's so important to lean into this market, and it's a good time to invest. So that's the first thing I would say. The second thing I would say is, you know, the other theme that Warren Buffett talks about a lot is that last century, um, the Dow Jones Industrial Average started at 66 and ended at over 11,000. And that, that period included, you know, the pandemic of 1918, the Great Depression, two world wars, the war in Vietnam, all types of recessions and catastrophes, you know, happened in our country, but the market always marched higher. And he always is pounding those themes home to remind us to be long-term investors, look out over the horizon, and um, don't think short-term. And the final thing that he says that's so important, and I talk to my African-American friends a lot about this, is invest in what you know. Invest in your circle of competence. The companies that you not only understand well, but love to read about, love to think about, and you'll make better decisions if you stick to your circle of competence. So I want to unpack a couple of those themes. One, you said lean into the market. How do people do that? I think that whether you're investing in companies you like and appreciate that you think are undervalued or into mutual funds, um, you know, professionally managed funds that have gotten beaten up pretty badly in this environment. And I always tell people, you want to buy, if you're buying mutual funds, you want to buy mutual funds that are run by experienced, competent, successful money managers, but you want to buy those funds while those funds are out of favor, when maybe they've gone through a period of underperformance. That's the time to buy them which is counterintuitive. Most people like to buy the hot manager that's been going up and up and up. But the problem with that is if his fund or her fund is going up and up and up, the stocks in it have gotten more and more expensive, and you're not buying his portfolio or her portfolio at bargain prices. You're buying them at top prices. So when you lean in, you want to lean into investments that are cheap, out of favor, that have underperformed, and those will be the ones that will do better in the next in the next market upturn. Another thing you said is invest in what you know. Can you describe what you mean by that? You know, example, I was talking to uh, my barber the other day, and uh, he loves basketball like I love basketball. You know, I, I played basketball in college, and he was, a, he was a basketball player. And I was telling him, you know, Madison Square Garden stock is – really a bargain today because no one is going to the garden to see concerts or watch the Knicks play or watch the Rangers play. The garden is empty and the stock is selling what we think is a bargain price. But since he knows basketball really, really well, 
you know, you can make a decision about whether it's the time to buy a company like Madison Square Garden Entertainment, where you get not only the garden, but you get the Chicago Theater, you get all the land around the garden in midtown Manhattan, and you uh, get the new sphere entertainment complex that the uh, Madison Square Garden is building in Las Vegas. So it's fun when you can invest in things like that that you have an interest in and you know what's going on, and you'll make better decisions because you understand it. Um, so instead, again, buying the hot tip or the hot stock, buy those companies where when you read about it, you're going to really understand all the ins and outs of what's going on there, and you'll make, better, you'll make much better decisions. One of the things you said was it's a good time to invest. What specifically makes this a good time to invest? It's a really great time now because stocks have gotten to be relatively cheap. Um, they've dropped a lot since the beginning of the year. You know, even though the S&P is not down that much, but the broad market of all the small and mid-sized companies, they got crushed in March and April. And so they're selling at cheap, cheap prices. They're, you know, it's, it's a great opportunity to buy wonderful companies at bargain prices. So that's the reason why it's a good time to buy now, we feel. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that it's going to go straight up. The markets can have dips, and no one knows what's going to happen today or next week or next month. But if you buy great businesses at bargains, you're going to do well. The second thing that's really good about this environment is in interest rates are very, very low. And... Um, that helps a lot because now in blue chip companies, you can get a lot of blue chip companies that have dividends of three, four, five percent, much more than you can get on a treasury bill or your money market fund or your bank savings account. So if you can buy a wonderful business that's growing steadily and it's paying you a nice dividend of three, four, five percent while it's growing, that's much, much better than putting the money today into your money market fund or your bank savings account and earning like one percent or less. Now, it's said that change and disruption creates economic opportunities. Is there an opportunity or a silver lining financially? Oh, I, you know, I think that the one thing that is um, a great thing for our society today, and it's that we've become a much more productive society. You know, we've learned how to uh, shop, you know, from home and how to entertain ourselves uh, in, and not having to go out. And, you know, more and more we're using technology to change the way that we live our lives. And I think it's going to make this country much, much more productive. Our productivity number is going to go up so much because of the magic that we have, the computers that we have in our phones, the new disruptive technologies, you know, everything from the Ubers to the Airbnbs to the, again, what's happened with the Apple phones and just everything that you can think about makes it easier for us to get more done each and every day. And if, if our country is more productive, we'll be able to grow faster. We'll, our country will get more things done. And our GDP growth should be better than it's been in and it reminds me, I mean, I'm too, I'm too young, to, I wasn't there, but when we had the Industrial Revolution generations ago, and you had the cars, and you had planes, and you had you know, telephones, and all the new technology made our country much more productive. 
than when you, you know, were getting around on buggies and horses and couldn't fly from coast to coast in five hours. So this is a, another one of these kind of renaissances, I think, in our country. We'll look back and say this is a time that really transformed America and allowed us to do so much more and grow our, grow our economy so much faster. We're hearing the word depression and recession thrown around. Are we in a recession or depression? I wouldn't say we're in a depression. You know, depre the depression lasted a long, long time. You know, it wasn't a three months or six months or even a one year. It, it, you know, it really did linger. Often people say it was World War II that got us out of the depression. So I don't think we're in a depression. But we are clearly in a, in a short-term recession. You know, um, you know, our growth in our economy has gone negative in such a significant way. There's just no doubt that we're already in a, in a recession. And we'll see that in the earnings results as companies report their profits uh, during this quarter and next quarter. You'll see how impactful this recession has been on the vast majority of American businesses. And why are earnings something that we should pay attention to? Well, if you, you, know, you buy a company or if you own a company, you start a company, you want to buy a company that, that is profitable, uh, that generates profits, you know, day to day, week to week, month to month. And that's the heart of it. You know, whether you start a grocery store or you start a restaurant or you start a dry cleaners uh, like George Jefferson, you know, profits are key. And that's the same in public markets. You know, the only difference is that public companies are typically much bigger than your local companies, and you have a lot more partners with you when you buy shares in a public company. But it's the same thing. You're buying a share in a business. You know, when I tell people that, yeah, you know, you can own part of Madison Square Garden, people are like, I never thought about that. And I tell them, you know, you're going to own all this part of all this land in midtown Manhattan. You know, I know I love real estate, but I thought I was just going to go and buy my own real estate in my own community. But, you know, it's sort of neat to be able to be part owner of some of the biggest and best franchises in the world and the best companies in the world and where you can identify why they're going to be profitable and grow into the future um, because you understand those businesses so well. I often tell people it's just better to invest in a large company that's proven they're great at making profits than trying to start one on your own sometimes. Now I have a follow-up question. You mentioned real estate. What do you have to say to those retirees or individuals that say, this is the evidence I needed and I'm going to lean into real estate. That's a better investment going forward. What do you have to say to those folks? Well, I tell people, uh, you know, as I sort of alluded to, one is um, you don't want to invest in just what's worked recently and don't want to disinvest from areas that have done poorly recently. So, you know, to give up on the stock market now, you know, I believe is a mistake. As I've said, you know, you want to buy when stocks are selling at bargain prices. When it comes to real estate, you know, if you know the community you're living in really, really well, and you understand why it's going to grow and be thrive more than everyone else, well, then that's might make sense to invest in local real estate. You know, my father had the opposite experience, and he bought a lot of real estate on the south side of Chicago, 
And because of the historical discrimination and the segregation that we had here in Chicago, the racism that was there, the properties that he bought never went up as much as the values, the properties that were downtown, the values that were in the north suburbs, the western suburbs, where at the time when he was doing this, he wasn't even allowed to buy property in those regions uh, where the real wealth was being created. So I always tell people, you know, you want to buy real estate in sectors that you understand why they're going to be good over the long term. But at the same time, you can always buy publicly traded real estate, and that's just as good. You know, one of my favorite real estate stocks years ago was a company called the Rouse Company, and they owned Water Tower Place here in Chicago. They owned Faneuil Hall in Boston, South Seaport in New York City, uh, uh, Summerlin in Las Vegas they had all this great, you know, real estate in the best parts of those cities. And as Las Vegas boomed, the value of that real estate went up. And we made many times our money on owning Rouse, which is a real estate company. Uh, we didn't have to go and you know, pay all the expenses and the real estate brokerage fees and, you know, buy our own property and try to manage it and collect rents and do all this. We could buy a publicly company, public company that had great real estate, and they took care of all the hard parts. Even before this economic downturn, the African-American community had an unemployment rate two times that of their white counterparts. And I'm actually going to say the black American community because there is a distinction there. Now, how will the black American community specifically recover from where we are today? Well, one of the things I've been pushing here in Chicago is that we have to get the anchor institutions in our city, cities around the country to do business with black-owned businesses. You know, our universities, our hospitals, our museums, our large corporations, if they only do business with people that they know, they're comfortable with, and they've done business with them before, we can't come back and thrive in this new economy. Um, it's so vital that we do that. You know, I, there are some people here in Chicago that do it very, very well. Uh, the University of Chicago has a great program to work with African-American-owned companies. Exelon Corporation does, too. And uh, McDonald's, of course, had a long history of that. We've got to get the broader cross-section of, of, of the major anchor institutions that do business with black companies in, in everything that we do, just not the typical supply chain, supplier diversity things, but to spend money with us in professional services, financial services, and technology, the parts of the economy where the wealth is going to be created in the next 10 years. And um, we sometimes sit on these leadership roles and allow uh, the white companies to get all the economic opportunities. And that economic injustice is just so unfair. And if we don't change that, we'll continue to have our wealth gap get larger in this country, even coming out of this you know, financial crisis. Um, the second thing we have to do is also hold the large companies accountable for the diversity of their teams and their management leadership and their board of, boards of directors. And again, we just can't allow folks to say they care about diversity and inclusion, but in reality don't live those values uh, as they run their businesses day to day. So how do you go about enforcing that? So you talked about the anchor institutions doing business with black American business, and you also talked about 
holding these large firms accountable for their inclusion efforts so that they can see things through that inclusion lens. How do, does the person on the board communicate this and how do we force these anchor institutions to buy black in terms of supporting um, black business? Well, there's a couple things. I think, you know, we do a conference every year for African Americans on corporate boards. And uh, we've done it now for 17 years. Russell Reynolds has been our partner from the beginning, and, uh, and we have Deloitte as a partner now also. And one of the things we do every year at the conference is we have a, what we call the conscience of the conference, someone who has believed deeply in the civil rights movement to come to talk to the board members and remind them that they have a responsibility to fight for social justice and economic justice when they're in the boardroom. So over the years, we've had everyone from Harry Belafonte, uh, Congressman John Lewis, uh, Reverend Calvin Butts, Reverend Jackson, Reverend Sharpton, former Ambassador Andy Young, um, uh, Congressman Clyburn. We've even had President Obama at our conference. And that just to give you a sense of we think it's important to find a way to inspire black directors to fight for us and realize they have a responsibility to do that when they're in their leadership roles. And we ask them to keep track of the spending by category that their company is spending money on, keep track of the executive ranks of all the suppliers and the company itself that you're involved in, and also make sure the company is creating philanthropic opportunities to give money to the civil rights organizations and community organizations that care about our community. So that's what we ask black board members and black business leaders to do, that we realize that if we aren't there out there fighting for us and pushing these companies to do the right thing, we're not going to make progress as a people. And one of the things I say when I'm on a board, I tell people, if I'm on this board and you guys say you care about diversity and inclusion, my job is to hold you accountable to the promises you're making to the broad public. And if I'm not asking those questions, I, I, I know that often they're not going to be asked. So it's up to us to ask the tough questions and stay on point and force these institutions to live the values that they say they care about. So I tell people, I'm helping you to get your task done if I'm on your board, because everyone says all the right things, but very often they don't execute around those beliefs in a consistent fashion. So that's kind of what we do. The other thing that's important, of course, is we have to support our civil rights organizations, whether it's National Action Network or Rainbow Push or the Urban League with Mark Morial and, and other uh, you know, great institutions like that. We need those civil rights leaders to fight for us, and we also need progressive political leaders. You know, right now in Congress, we have Maxine Waters running the Finance Committee of the House, uh, Congresswoman Joyce Beatty, who is uh, head of the Subcommittee on Diversity and Inclusion of the House Financial Services Committee. But having a black woman in charge of the Financial Services Committee is so important and so powerful because she can put so much pressure on companies to do the right thing, and she has a passion for it. And, um, and so does her, her colleague, Joyce Beatty. We need to make sure that all of us are supporting the progressive institutions, the progressive civil rights leaders, as well as the progressive political leaders if we want to move our community forward. Thank you. You really addressed the question from the macro perspective. Now I'd like you to answer that same question, but really 
speaking to the mom and pops or the average everyday individual who may not be sitting on a corporate board. So we're talking about the wallet of the African-American family or the black American family right now. How and what do they need to do specifically to move forward from where we are right now? Well, yeah, that's really, really important. I think that um, individuals need to live these values and, you know, that's what my father did for me. He, uh, when I was getting going, he introduced me to his African-American stockbroker, who actually was the first one ever in Chicago. He uh, took me to Independence Bank to open up my checking account, the largest black bank in the country at the time. My savings account was at uh, Illinois Federal Savings, a black-owned savings and loan, a black-controlled savings and loan. It was really, really important that he thought we had to live those values, and that was just important to do it day to day. I think we've gotten away from that in this country, and we've got to bring back that commitment to each other and then realize a lot of us are sitting in decision-making roles. We might not be in the board of directors, but you might be in charge of marketing or in the marketing department at some institution, and you should say, why aren't we advertising in black enterprise? Why aren't we advertising on black radio, WBON, here in Chicago? Why aren't we, you know, using a black ad agency to help us reach our black consumers, et cetera, et cetera? All of us can ask those questions and consistently make a difference, uh, whether it's directly the money we're spending ourselves or often the spending that we can help direct uh, wherever we happen to work at whatever, whatever the level of the economy and economic institution that you're involved with. So it's something I really believe deeply in, and um, it's just not happening enough. In one of your answers, you referenced a black financial advisor, a black-owned bank, and a black stockbroker. Why does that matter? I think it matters a lot. I mean, it's, it's because one of the things that happens, if you have black leaders who become successful in these institutions, and they move up because they've got customers. And if you, if you bring in customers, you're going to be more successful. And they will – so if you're an individual at a – let's say you work in Merrill Lynch and, and, and you're, in the, you're in the Boston office. If the senior – if the African Americans in Boston are working with you, you're going to get promoted. You'll have more power. You'll have more influence. And then you'll be able to use that power and influence to hire other African-Americans and make sure that Merrill Lynch is doing business with African-American companies and mutual fund companies. You'll have an enormous amount of impact because you've been successful within that organization. And you may or may not have been successful if you didn't have our community working with you, uh, having your back. And of course, the same thing happens with a strong African-American-owned company. Um, if we all support those companies and we get larger and larger, you, you create role models, and like we've tried to do at Ariel when you have leaders like Melody Hobson as our co-CEO. If we're successful, you know, she becomes a role model for African-American women who are thinking about financial services. Several of our executives who've worked here at our firm have gone off and started private equity companies and, and, and working at senior levels at major banks like Northern Trust and other places. They're influencing society. But also when, you're, when your company is successful, you're going to go out and hire other African-Americans you're going to support black-owned institutions. You're going to you know, be philanthropic to our community. There's just so many ways that you benefit society if you have strong African-American leaders and strong African-American companies. When you started your firm, you remembered the small investor. 
What do you have to say to the small investor right now today? I tell the small investor, get started. If you haven't invested in the stock market yet, this, this is a perfect time to get going. And maybe let's make it up. If you have $1,000, you put in $300 this, this month, $300 next month, and the last $400 in the third month, take your time getting it invested, you know, kind of a third, a third, a third, something like that. And that way you'll sort of average in during this kind of volatile marketplace. Once you get started, uh, as I said earlier, invest in what you know and what you like to read about and what you understand. And then I would also say I find that once you do get started, then you get excited about it. And when you start to do well, you'll start to put more – you'll find ways to find more money to put into the markets. That's what I found with my, what my father did for me. Once I started investing and loving it, I started trying to go out and find you know, more money that I could put into the markets. And because I had so much fun with it, and I think that all of us will, are like that, but it won't happen if you don't start first. You've got to get that feel for the markets before you get confident and comfortable and start to see your assets grow. If someone's listening to the show today and they would like to know more about aerial investments, where do they go and how do they invest in your fund? Well, there's, there's a couple ways. Um, if they have a financial advisor, they should go to their financial advisor and ask them to have aerial fund as one of the options that you can put that can be put into their portfolio. At work, if there's a 401k plan, they can ask HR say, "Why is an aerial fund one of the options here at in the 401k plan?" Um, we are a part of the Illinois 529 program, so the folks that have families can invest directly through the Illinois 529. And then if you're interested in just coming directly to Ariel, um, you just call us, you know, 312-726-0140, and we would be happy to meet with you and talk with you about your investment portfolio and ways that you can invest in Ariel funds. And, of course, we can do everything online and, um, you know, at arielinvestments.com. So um, we'd love to have all size investors come to Ariel. It's something that is very important to us. And the website for Aerial Investments is www.arielinvestments.com. That's www.arielinvestments.com. I have a follow-up question for you. Are there cultural nuances that require a different recipe for financial success among black Americans? Or is it the oh. same? You know, it's the same for, but the only, you know, the problem is for us is that we typically didn't have a grandfather or aunt or uncle who was talking about the stock market at the dinner table at Thanksgiving. You know, because of the historical discrimination that we face and the Jim Crow laws and rules, we were not allowed and didn't have the opportunity to build the kind of wealth that required it to be invested in the markets. And so we didn't have, again, that ability to inherit money. We didn't have experience talking to financial advisors. Um, again, we just didn't have that kind of exposure often to the stock market that white Americans did. And so it's something that just made it makes it harder for us to get started because when you're always going to be a little fearful when you're doing something for the first time where you can lose, you know, your hard-earned savings. Um, but when you again, you know, the white community often has family members who could help get people exposed to the markets and, and inherit the wealth to pass along from generation to generation and be able to talk about how wealth created in the long run through the financial markets. Um, 
but hopefully over time, with all the work we're doing on financial literacy and the like, we'll be able to help create more equal opportunity for our community. And we really hope that one day more and more financial institutions will do what we've done and partner with Urban Public School, where you're starting to teach financial literacy to kids in middle school and getting them prepared for good financial futures. That is the last word. Thank you for listening to Financial Fitness with host Nika Constantino. Tune in to Financial Fitness next Wednesday at 6 p.m. on 89.9 KMOJ, The People Station. Good evening.